0: Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ, or John Swartacki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself. And he wants solutions, not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere.
1: Joe, you're right, CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro, but what most people don't know is that John Swartacki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating or life-threatening disease. He formed survivors for solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DCEKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate CZ is our leader here at DCEKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show
0: welcome back to another edition of dc ekg a part of the big wig media network distributed by our partner evergreen I'm here again uh, with my good friend, Eric Euland. I'm Joe Grogan, and we're joined today by Jay Bhattacharya, a good friend of both Eric and mine. Um, Eric, why don't you start us giving us an intro of Jay?
1: Sure, happy to do so, and Jay, welcome. Thanks for being on DCEKG. Jay is a professor of health policy at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Bhattacharya's research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. Dr. Bhattacharya's recent research focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19, as well as an evaluation of policy responses to the epidemic, federal, state, local. He's published more than 160 articles in top peer-reviewed scientific journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, statistics, law, and public health, among other fields. (laughs) He holds an MD and PhD in economics, both earned at Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. Joe. Thank you for having me.
0: Jay, let's hear a little bit about your background. Obviously, um, a lot of people have come to know you from your appearances on the media over the last couple of years, Um, beginning with COVID. Maybe they hadn't heard about you before, and now they're aware of who you are. But I think your life story is actually pretty compelling. Um, How did you end up at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California? Uh, Where did the Jay Bhattacharya story begin?
2: Well, I was born in India. I mean, I came to the U.S. when I was four. Uh, my uh, I still my dad was an electrical engineer. In fact, he was he was a rocket scientist. He like helped design uh, missile guidance systems uh, in the U.S. Um, but when he first came to the U.S., he uh, couldn't find a job because it was like there was the middle of a recession, 1971. Um, and uh, I remember when I landed, uh, my dad handed me a, a chocolate bar it was like a Hershey's chocolate bar. I was like okay this is this is a great country like my, we, he was here <laughs> for a year. He worked at McDonald's um while he was anyways it was it was fantastic uh, uh place to uh, my mom grew up in a calcutta slum um but for me it was it really was like a, a classic immigrant story like we uh, I got to I, I was pretty good at math and sciences. Um, I really liked uh, uh, I really liked the idea of using these math and sciences for for uh, helping helping uh, you know I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I was little. Um, but then uh, when I got to college I, I got into Stanford and it was uh, I discovered economics and I realized what I really want to do with my life which was combine the uh, the tools of economics and the, the sort of sensibilities of economics where you think about the well-being and life life circumstances of so many different people with this medis- medical training. Um, and that's essentially what I've been doing my entire life. Uh, my and Jay, entire, was
1: oh, that a gradual realization or was it just a thunderclap from the sky one day?
2: I mean, I always wanted to be a doctor, Eric, but I didn't know what that meant. Uh, then I in, med- in when I was an undergrad, I discovered economics. I thought, "Wow, this is this is you know." it turns out that economics it's, it's actually a centrally important idea in medicine, but not in the way normally people think about. Um, normally people think about economics and medicine is just, oh, it's just about money. No, actually the key thing is everything in medicine involves a trade off. Everything in medicine involves you know you you take this drug and you are expecting some benefit from it so there's some some uncertainty around that um there may be some harms so you have to like think about the the trade off the benefit and the harms so you have to give e- each and every item in me- in medicine in public health involves fundamentally a trade off and of course economics is the science of trade offs the tools and, th- and way of thinking economics turns out to be critically important in medicine and i've i've sent I've almost, almost all of the 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 my career Uh, all of my career has been focused on applying that basic principle to basic topics and really important topics in medicine and public health, including infectious disease epidemiology. So,
1: Jay, before we go further in, in the Jay story, is this insight, this observation, this important role of economics was that accentuated or even focused on when you went through medical school? Is it now an element of people t- being trained in medical school, or is it still being missed?
2: It's still being missed, Eric. So I, it's um, when I was in medical school, it was striking because I did a, a PhD in economics and an MD, um, and I would go to the the PhD in economics side, and uh, I, I guess I just that's my natural way of thinking about life, about trade offs, about equilibrium. Um, the, and uh, and, and in this, this sort of awareness of the social circumstances of people and the importance of that for their outcomes, their 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 their, their of course their work and all that, but also their health. And in the medical side, it was, it was you know like this biomedical model um, that's very focused on the biology and less aware of the social circumstances, although that they play, play such an important role. Um, and I think uh, even today, I think medical uh, in medicine. Uh, most medical students just don't don't get the exposure to those ideas as much as I think they should.
0: So when we're talking about the, you started to get involved in big ideas in epidemiology, uh, including infectious diseases, you spent some time on H1N1. Before we get into COVID, can we talk a little bit about how you found yourself working on H1N1 and what your conclu- why you were curious about it and then what some of your conclusions were, your thought process as you started to look at the data?
2: Sure. So, um, I mean, I've been working on 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 uh, infectious disease policy from almost the beginning. So, like, I, I worked on uh, some HIV work, uh, looking at uh, Medicaid coverage of HIV and how important it was for the, uh, make sure that pa- patients with HIV got access to to some of the new medica- then new medications through Medicaid. Um, I uh, in two thousand nine, uh, when the swine flu epidemic happened, the H one N one epidemic happened. I was very interested to know. Uh, How do people respond to perceptions of of risk when uh, when faced with an infectious disease? And how does that change the transmission of that disease Do people like uh, when they when they when there's a high risk environment, they perceive a high risk environment. Do they change their behavior? Um, And so I wrote some uh, mathematical model on uh, on that, uh, trying to trying to incorporate into the standard mathematical models and it actually changes things quite a bit. Like, for instance, you don't you don't need to formally have a lockdown if people know the risk they'll take actions in their own lives to protect themselves if they can, to the extent that it's possible and that makes sense. Um, the, the only thing I noticed in H1N1 um, is that, uh, is that you know, very early in that pandemic, I saw the World Health Organization say that there was a very high risk of dying, if you get it, three, four, five percent. It was really high risk, um, is what they wrote. Uh, in very uh, What happened over time was that people started doing studies of how widespread that, that flu was, H1N1 is the uh, influenza virus, uh, and it turned out that for every person that was identified as a case, someone who came into a hospital or a doctor with uh, found to have this virus uh, actively in them, there were 100 or more people walking around who had already had antibodies to it that never came to the attention of public health authorities. And in fact, the death rate wasn't 3, 4, or 5 percent. It was more like 0.01 percent. It was more like one in ten thousand rather than you know three in a hundred. A huge, huge difference, and it really defanged that pandemic. Like if people um, initially were incredibly scared about it, uh, and then when the the death rate estimates changed, the, the infection, technically infection fatality rate estimates um, took into account that there were all these people, it was it became clear the virus had been spreading outside the knowledge public health. Pretty pretty much widely without uh, and and um, that m- none of the measures to sort of stop it from really had worked.
0: Is, is that a um, characteristic of infectious diseases, and in, say the World Health Organization or public health authorities that they their initial mortality estimates are high, or is that an anomaly with H1N1?
2: No, I mean I think you you see this over and over again, right? So what happens in the early days of a pandemic is you find people who die from it, right? That's how it comes to the attention of public health authorities in the first place. And then they count all the people in you know, dire straits from it in hospital settings, because that's where all the people are. And then the fight is over how many people actually have had it, all, uh, but have not come to the, the attention of authorities. The early pen, uh, estimates of mortality are always inflated in that sense because they are concentrated on a on a set of people who are very, very sick. Um, and it's, it's just it's uh, especially for like respiratory virus pandemics. That's that's a, that's a classic thing um, because, I mean, you know that it's spreading outside. You just don't know how much.
1: So, Jay, is there a way to correct for that early on based on history of pandemics and and the statistics and the and the accuracy of, of what we've learned here over the past hundred years prior to COVID?
2: There absolutely is. So the, the key thing is you need to have a very rapid early seroprevalence prevalence study. Sero means blood. Uh prevalence means how, how common it is in the population. So what you're looking for is antibodies to the virus or whatever pathogen you are looking at, uh, thinking about. Um, and this is for respiratory virus pandemics, right? You obviously for STDs and other things, you, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, you have a different different um strategy. But um, but for this virus, uh the key thing was to get very quickly studies in the population at large of how common the antibodies were. That way, you get a much more accurate picture of how widespread the disease is, how deadly the disease is, and how far it has to go before it, it, it dies off or, or, or you know, sort of hits uh, hits most of the population. So, was that learning brought
1: forward? around COVID, and we'll get there in a moment, but is there a standard now that's normally applied when it comes to respiratory style potential pandemics?
2: I I mean, I I, I conducted a very early seroprevalence study for this disease in in April of 2020. I wrote an op-ed in in March of 2020 in the Wall Street Journal um, calling for a, a study like this, saying that you know the, we were, the was titled is the coronavirus as deadly as they say it was a question. Um, and the, and uh, that led to my running a study in early April 2020 in Santa Clara County and uh, and Los Angeles County California uh, where we found that the disease was actually 50 or 40 or 50 times more uh common than people knew right there were for every person identified as a case in April 2020 there are 40 or 50 people walking around in Santa Clara County. uh uh, santa clara county california uh who'd already had the disease and and recovered because they had an antibody to it
0: jay let's Um, rewind just a little bit here so the beginning of the pandemic when did you first become aware of covid as an issue you're out in palo alto when does it enter your consciousness if you can recall that i think it was like late december early january 2020 i mean i saw the reports like
2: everyone else saw about this disease in china I, i read the report about the uh the you know that hero doctor that blew the whistle on that there was actually a, p- a pandemic on um and i thought and you know I, I i thought back to h1n1 and i thought back to sars sars one in 2003. um i gave a uh this was a this not odd thing because like I, I very very rarely at the time ever got these kind of invitations but i got an invitation to bloomberg news to talk about uh what effect the virus this pandemic versioning pandemic would have on markets on like stock markets in like late january early february 2020. um and of course i knew very little about the disease because no one knew anything about the disease so i just emphasized uncertainty is always bad for markets um so, but i was looking at the data and it was really clear from the data that the disease had already been seeded in january all over the world right so the first case in the u.s was late january 2020. um all, by that time there was already like a, a talk of an outbreak in Italy, Iran, um, the UK had had cases the, the, the disease was seeded everywhere. It was very different than SARS 3 uh, SARS 1, um, which had been a, uh, which had been a, uh, uh, you know, like, primarily focused first in China and then in Toronto and a couple other centers, it wasn't spreading as rapidly, whereas this disease was spreading very rapidly, um, seeded everywhere. Uh, that's what led to that. And then the, the, H1, the H1N1 the H one kind of uh, my observations led me to think maybe this disease was much more widespread than we'd realized. Even in, and by, I think I had that realization sometime in mid-February 2020.
0: So you're watching that and you're saying, look, uh, the border shut down with China. We're talking about shutting down air travel to Europe, but you're already beginning to think, wait a second, it's too late for that. It's even though we're not picking up cases, or a bunch of cases in the United States. And remember, we were dealing with all this issue of people on the cruise ships and how to get them back and keep them isolated on military bases so they wouldn't infect the larger population. But your observation out in Palo Alto is, look, it's probably too late, it's, it's widespread, and we're just not picking up on it. So you write this op-ed and it's published in Mar- March or April, did you say? March, March 2020, in, in uh, mid-March 2020. And um, did you get a lot of phone calls from uh, government scientists saying, Jay, this is really interesting, your seroprevalence um, idea, let's collaborate on this, or how would we design it, or are you going to design it? Did other people call you in the private sector? What's the reaction from the government and from California officials and other private sector actors?
2: So I didn't get much reaction from the government. I fully expected what would happen after I wrote that op-ed. It was that the CDC would run a zero prevalence study. Um, but why fact, did you
1: expect that?
2: <laughs> I was very naive about uh, about how government worked, I guess. Uh, but I mean, it was it was so clear that that was the number we needed to have. We absolutely needed to have that number in order to make good policy. Uh, and in fact, if I, I, was, I was reading some of uh, some some commentary on what was happening in the UK. It's the same thing. It's like people wanted to. Uh, uh, people in the UK also saw this as like the key key number. What right? if you know how widespread the disease is, you can then populate models better to try to forecast what's going to happen with the disease. Um, you can also design policies better, right? So if you know it's widespread among uh, uh, if, if you know what the death rates are, are, are uh, and how they differ for different people in the population in this disease, it was very clear even then there was older people that was really really at high risk, but younger people at very, very low risk from the disease. Um, that then you can actually uh, design a better policy. it was and it was clear that number was missing. In March of 2020, I looked at there was a, a, a model produced by the Imperial College London folks um, in a right around that time. And I looked at their estimate of, of, of the prevalence of the disease and the infection fatality rate, and it was based on essentially a guess. Um, and so it was, it was, like for anyone with infectious disease epidemiology expertise, this was the key number that needed to be known.
1: And the government's unexpected. not doing this. You're not hearing from anybody at CDC. They don't have an operating norm to just go ahead and do this. What about state authorities? What about businesses, friends? Again, what's their reaction? Are you hearing from anybody when you point, point this out?
2: Actually, the reaction from from private industry was actually quite amazing. And Which private industry? I would never would have been able to predict. I got a phone call from um, from a a man who runs named Dan Eichner, who runs testing for Major League Baseball. He had ordered a whole bunch of test kits from uh, early 2020 uh, from China for for COVID antibodies. And he said he was going to use it to, to test Major League Baseball. But when we read that op ed, he wanted to use it for science instead. And so he called and offered up the test kits to me. Um, and so that's how, that was the basis for running those studies, those two studies in, in in Santa Clara County and L.A. County, is that test kits offered up to me by Major League Baseball.
1: And how many test kits were these?
2: Uh, he gave us tens of thousands, 10,000 test kits. We ran um, two studies, uh, each of about 3,000 people each um, in those two places uh, with, with the test kits that he offered to us for free.
1: And that number of 3000 each county was able to give you statistically significant accurate results that informed both your observations about who might be more vulnerable and less vulnerable, but also the prevalence and then potentially be able to build models to forecast what would actually happen over the next several months.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So we, we um, with, with the 3000 hits in Santa Clara County, uh, it was hard because it was that we were in the middle of a lockdown, right? So normally you would have recruiting that would be you know more traditional recruiting, but we couldn't do that in traditional recruiting because of, because of the lockdown. So we we decided to go on Facebook um, and uh, recruit based on that. That leads to a select a different like a population that doesn't necessarily represent the population of the county. So we had to do some statistical adjustments. Um, there was also some fight over whether the test kit was how accurate the test kit was. Uh, the, and manufacturers' results suggested it was very accurate. But then we got some independent assessments. Um, we put the result out. It was like 3% of the county had already had COVID by early April 2020. That was a big number, 40, 50 times more bigger than the number of cases. The age gradient was already clear. Um, but people really didn't want to believe the result because it meant that the infection fatality rate was 2.2%, not 3 or 4% like the World Health Organization was saying. Um, Jay,
1: can we stop there why did people not want to believe this result
2: you know i think the main reason is that by april 2020 we'd already committed ourselves to this lockdown strategy schools had closed we'd already done tremendous damage to the, to the world economy as a consequence of these lockdowns and a lot of people's reputations were riding on it being necessary our result essentially suggested that 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 decision was a mistake. That, in fact, the infection fatality rate was low enough that uh, that you didn't that, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, that the disease was widespread enough, and that there was this huge age gradient in the risk. That a different strategy, a focused protection strategy, would have been the right thing to do, even in March of 2020.
0: Can I stop uh, right there, Jay? Because the, the Hill right now in the House, they're having a lot of hearings. There's a spe- select committee on investigating the origins of the pandemic and the response in the hopes that we can do a better job in the future. It's somewhat contentious, as you would imagine, Republicans and Democrats get into this. But I want to focus on this for a second. Is a key learning here that as quickly as possible in a future pandemic, potential pandemic um, or epidemic, we don't know how big it is. We need a prevalence study ASAP. And what does that require? I mean, you had to get antibody tests from Major League Baseball that they got from China, and it's sort of fortuitous that this dude called you up from Major League Baseball to say, I got a bunch of free tests. How would you, in a crystal ball situation, you're the grand public health guru for the Western world. How do you make sure that that this study can be replicated quickly in a future pandemic?
2: You know, I think uh, I wanted to I wanted to like to think more broadly than exactly what happened during this pandemic. I think the key thing is you need to have these these like central agencies like like the CDC, rather than thinking of themselves as like the main source of, of of pandemic information and truth, be open to outside uh, input. Like the public health norm has always has, has been that you have to have like a, a, essentially like one voice speaking or else the public will get confused but in the context of something like this where there's a lot of uncertainty floating around you actually can't have one voice you actually do need to be open to other voices outside now people are going to say crazy things but people are also going to say important things that would would would, if heated lead to a, a much more correct path um so to me the central thing joe is that a place like the CDC should not view itself as a central arbiter of, 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 of decision making on during the pandemic. It should be it should be actively looking to partners outside. To, to, and so, like, if they'd done that, if they'd reached out to me, if they, you know, read, read read that op-ed, and uh, in, or John Ioannidis wrote a very similar op-ed the week before at Stat News, um, they would have they would have like said, okay, well, let's run a very rapid serum problem study. Let we have to we have to resolve this key number. Now, I think in the next pandemic, Joe, the key number is likely different than that number. I don't know what it'll be. Right, it'll depend on on the the nature of the virus and the and the situation. But there's always gonna be a number or a set of numbers that you need to have. And um, the, if you have like this hubris of, of a few public health authorities, you know, someone like Tony Fauci, who very famously uh uh when he was challenged at one point said look look if you you challenge me you're not just questioning a man you're questioning science itself or something something very close to that you can't have that kind of hubris the key thing is a humility that's willing to be uh, engaged with people outside um and then change strategies the consequence of it
1: so jay you've done this in santa clara county you've gotten this result you run again in la county you get pretty much the same result you have therapy and intervention conclusions based on this information. You're putting this data out. Nobody wants to believe it. Is it indifference? Is it a polite rebuff? Is it hostility? What happens once you start putting information out in the midst of this storm of a shutdown, people fumbling around for COVID response, what we're trying to do in Washington DC, what state capitals are doing, how are how is that this data and how are you being treated
2: in this period? Oh, it was it was horrible. I was getting death threats. I was getting you know racist attacks, You know, go back to your home country kind of kind of attacks. Um, and at my university, on what grounds and and for what reasons? <laughs> I mean, I think people just were so they were so scared about the virus that for whatever reason they it was like uh, that, that 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 someone that's coming and giving like relatively good news that there's a different strategy. Um, they, people just thought that we, I was like trying to kill people. I, I mean, I just, I, it's hard to explain the psychology of it, Eric. I mean, I, it, to me, it was like one of these things where I, I was just doing science, but to other people, it was like a threat to like their, their, the way that they thought about the way the world worked. Um, and they reacted really negatively. Like people, like I had hit pieces done on, on my wife for, for running that study. I had an accusation um, that the, the, the founder of JetBlue had given five thousand dollars to a gift account at Stanford uh, after the study, after we'd done the data collection for the study, and somehow, like some some BuzzFeed news author wrote this piece saying that I would like changed the study result. It was ridiculous. Like for I mean, I just it doesn't. It, I mean, it's one of these things where like the, the the accusation was so preposterous that it was unbelievable that someone would would actually publish it, and much less in a mainstream media
0: outlet. Did those attacks um, start right away, right after yeah. you published the results? So immediate. There's no like um fuse on it starts right away as soon as you publish the results
2: yeah almost almost immediately right so like the nation wrote this piece accusing stanford of like stanford not me personally but of misconduct of even allowing the study to happen and even at stanford there was an attack on 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 the study like that normally a study like this you know professors can do whatever studies they like i mean we have academic freedom at least nominally but the but the, the university intervened in the study uh, because they were convinced that we had done it wrong, um, even though we actually hadn't done it wrong. And they forced us to change the protocols of the study in mid-course, uh, uh, You know, even beyond what the, like the Human Subjects Committee that, we, that you're supposed to go through had approved the study, and that's normal. Um, but then the administrators in the medical school then intervened to, to make us change the protocols outside of the Human Subjects Committee. Um, at one point, they actually forced us to bring back all the people who tested positive to retest on a platform, an antibody platform that they, that some for other professors were developing for commercial use, and uh, it it confirmed the results of the study, um, but they wouldn't let us publicize that fact at a time when we were getting at- attacked on the on the validity of the study. The study, by the way, it was replicated by you know, a, a hundred other studies, to found very, very similar results. And it was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. So it, it, was, it was a solid study, but very few people wanted to believe it at the time because it, it essentially said that the strategy we were following was wrong. I think we people had, had so ingrained in themselves that we'd made this sacrifice for the lockdown that it couldn't have been in vain. And when we came in with the result that said it was in vain, that 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 was not going to be met you know, with with like you know, with open arms and happiness.
1: So, Jay, these interventions from the university leadership itself, were they designed ultimately to disprove your results or to come up with a different result?
2: I mean, I think they were, they were wanted to essentially try to undermine our results, say we we've gotten the wrong answer. Um, because they were they were convinced that you know they didn't like the, the test kit we're using and they wanted us to use the other test kit, the other a new antibody test kit, but that that hadn't been developed and they hadn't offered us that. Uh, there was also a, uh, a the person who's now the head of medicine at Stanford. She had just gotten a $13 million grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation to run a, also another antibody seroprevalence study. Which, but hers was due to be done by December of 2020, which in my view is far too late to inform decision making, which needed to get done you know immediately.
0: By the way, how, what were the results of that study when it was ultimately done?
2: I don't think she's published them yet, actually, Joe. <laughs> No,
0: would you call that a good investment?
2: Thirteen million dollars. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure they've. They, they, you, you can always like say you've done the X, Y, and Z, but like the the the, the headline things that you was funded for to do. She, I don't think she, that's been done. But I, you know, I could. I don't know. I haven't followed. I, after after like uh, after a few months of April 2020, that the antibody seroprevalence studies weren't the key thing. I started. I moved on to other other things. So I, haven't, I haven't tracked that literature as, as uh, all that closely since 2020.
1: So this explosion occurs. These attacks start almost without any trigger, almost without any notice. You're a scientist following a scientific process in order to put scientific results in front of the public in order to try to inform decision-making. Kind of to your point here just a moment ago, the, the world continues to move forward. The public policy response is what it is, but you're continuing to investigate, understand the logic of the, your results and trying to put a path forward in front of people. What happens as you're doing that?
2: Well, I mean, I, I um, you know, let's say summer of 2020, uh, my friend Scott Atlas, he he gets invited by President Trump to be in uh, his, pres- his his advisor in the White House.
1: And Scott's at,
2: uh, at Stanford as well. Yeah, Scott's at Stanford. I mean, I, I actually didn't know Scott well before the pandemic, but because of the prevalence study, I presented it and Scott, uh, I hit it off immediately. He had all kinds of really important, interesting questions. And... Um, he uh, he and I are sharing papers, right? Because it's a pretty exciting time in some sense to be in one sense to be scientists. So how many times in your life do you get to see a, uh, uh, learn about a new disease in real time? Uh, yeah, and so it's it's it, so and there's new discoveries literally, literally every day coming out. And so he and I are sharing papers continuously. And then when he gets invited to the White House, we keep doing that. Um, and he's calling me up in in J, um, uh, like I think it was July 2020 when we start and, and he's like, extremely frustrated because he's, he's trying to share these papers with people like Tony Fauci, with Debbie Burks, and they're not interested in the papers. They're not interested in the fact that their papers are finding that there's very strong evidence of immunity after infection. Um, this is July 2020. Uh, they're not interested in the infection fatality rate uh, literature. They're not interested in the age gradient. They're not interested in the criticisms of the of the the modeling exercises like the Imperial College model. They're not interested in any of this.
1: Jay, let's go um, back for a moment in terms of immunity for people who are naturally exposed. Obviously, a huge flashpoint and continues to be a, a subject of some controversy today. In your early results and what you were doing in those, those months in the run-up to Scott joining the White House and you're seeing this, what's the reaction again for, from policymakers and fellow scientists to these facts?
2: Right. So in um, early days of the pandemic, like, say, let's again, March, April 2020, when we're running the, the, that problem study, we're looking for antibodies. Now, do those antibodies mean that someone is immune? Uh, like, in, in principle, you want to be able to say, yes, it's a coronavirus. Other coronaviruses produce immunity after after you've been inf- infected. It just, just, just does, until the next variant anyways. And you get very strong protection against severe disease. It's likely that that's the case with COVID, but you don't know that for a fact in April of 2020. By July of 2020, immunologists have started to run really interesting studies looking at uh, at, at, at this immunity, and they, they identified uh, patterns of immune uh, immune protection, uh, both like figuring out like when, uh, when, you know okay T cells do this and B cells do that um, that very strongly suggested that it was you actually did have immunity. Now, when we ran the seropropylase study in April, we didn't tell people they were immune. We just told people they had antibodies. And we told them that that doesn't necessarily mean you're immune, because the Human Subjects Board told us it wasn't responsible to tell them that, and I, we agreed. But by July, August 2020, it was really clear that there was pre- there's pretty good protection against uh, severe disease, uh, certainly, and reinfection even on, uh, on infection. So like, for instance, one study in Italy, northern Italy, found that. Uh, you know, a full year after the the uh, the the the, the uh, after infection, only about three in a thousand people were being reinfected in that first year. Um, I mean, it's it's it was very strong evidence, and yet when Scott would share that evidence with uh, the White House, uh, with, with with folks like the you know Debbie Burks in the White House, um, they they were they weren't interested. So Jay, you have this data, you have these results.
1: Scott, and you are talking about his frustration as people are simply rejecting this. Nevertheless, these are scientific facts. Why is it that there's this reaction? Why is there effort to both push this aside and in some cases, it appears, suppress conversation about potentially natural immunity?
2: Well, in, in July, August, September 2020, I think what, what was going on inside the, um, the minds of people like debbie burks and uh tony fauci uh you know I, this is speculation on my parts but, but but like uh, i in, uh, it's informed it's a by it's podcast
1: you can speculate as much as you want
2: <laughs> <laughs> well i mean I'm, I'm also talking to some folks inside here at stanford um the, the it was I, I think uh first that, that there was this idea that the, that there's a vaccine coming and um the vaccine is going to produce immunity uh if you if you if you tell people if you had COVID and recovered, you 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 are pretty, you know, pretty 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 strongly protected. Well, you may not want the vaccine. You may want to actually have COVID parties, like you may want to like intentionally get yourself infected. Um, and I think that, that a lot of people in public health were thinking if you told people a true fact that if you have COVID and recovered, you are you have strong protection, it would lead to behaviors that they didn't want people to engage in. And I think that was. That was the primary reason they thought it was dangerous to talk about immunity. Then uh, they didn't wa- they didn't want it to discuss.
0: In they wanted your to opinion it. that as a physician, I mean, how do you view that ethically to hide that information about natural immunity?
2: I, I think it's deeply unethical, Joe. I think if you if you are um, a public health scientist, you have an absolute obligation to tell people the truth, even if it is inconvenient to what you want to make people do. Um, you don't. We don't use the truth to manipulate people. We use we t- we tell the truth because it's the right thing to do, and because it actually, it, on net, leads to better outcomes, both trust of public health institutions and also better better behavior by people. Um, and I think uh, that that it was it would absolutely was wrong to ignore these basic scientific facts as they were emerging just because they were is inconsistent with the strategy that uh, public health authorities at the time had had uh, had, had adopted.
1: And had this information emerged and not been suppressed or derogated, would you believe that would have changed the strategy? Would the strategy have adjusted? Or would people kind of, to your earlier point, taken in that information and made their own choices about whether or not to, to go to a COVID exposure party or wait for, count on the, the vaccine, the therapeutic, to provide them immunity?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I would never recommend anyone go to a COVID exposure party. That's not, that's not a very smart okay. thing to do. And, and I, in fact, I, someone, someone at NPR kind of asked,
1: even You say it out loud, right?
2: I mean, I, someone at NPR, during the, around the, the Santa Clara site, someone on NPR actually asked me, well, doesn't this mean people are going to go to COVID, COVID parties? And I said, no, this is, this, don't, don't, don't do that. That's a mistake. <laughs> um, um, but, uh yeah. So, so, but like, I, I think that that around this time we, we don't have to speculate the answer to your question. We know that for a fact. Like, the reason why uh, the Great Barrington Declaration came about was in part because of this evidence about immunity. If there's immunity, then you're going to have some herd immunity. Um, and uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, one of one of the ideas inside of the Great Barrington Declaration was that uh, you're eventually going to get to a point where the, the disease, the, this disease, is endemic. Endemic means that it's floating around and you can't get rid of it, and it's it, it, people are going to be exposed to it basically continuously. And um, if you, it's endemic and there's no immunity, that's a disaster. That means that every single time you get infected, you're exposed to some some, mor- some huge mortality risk that's, that that doesn't diminish over time because of immunity. That's terrible. Um, whereas the Great Barrington Declaration is premised on this idea that uh, the second exposure is going to be much more benign than the second the first exposure. So talk a little bit about
1: the genesis of the Declaration. All these facts, this data, this huge political fight over significant scientific data, information, facts, and and the overlay of campaign and personalities. How is it that you and colleagues kind of catch their breath and decide, you know what, we need to resolve some of these facts and write down and try to, to, to put in front of the public what we think, how to think about this, what we believe and and how to sort out all these challenges for not just policymakers, but individual American citizens and ultimately people all around the world.
2: Yeah, so it was this was uh, so we wrote the declaration in October of 2020. So again, fast forward from the summer, um, and it was very clear to us that the, the, the disease was coming back. Right. So there was some hope that maybe in the summer um, that, that, that the disease had gone away, uh, you know, like people, like the you know the the curve had been flattened. Uh, they, I think um, Andrew Cuomo declared you know mission accomplished or something. Um, but then um, you had like uh, you had the evidence from uh, some of the some of the like Arizona, the disease had come back, and other other countries, the disease had come back. And it was, it was it was 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 like increasingly clear to me, anyways, that it was likely a seasonal disease that the winter there was going to be a winter wave right it, it arrived in our winter um and uh, i also saw that that governments went to lockdown again that many governments had attributed the disappearance of the uh, or the reductions in the cases of the disease in um in spring to the lockdowns as opposed to just basic herd, herd immunity right herd immunity means a sufficiently large number of population uh, uh, given the way that they interact with each other, is what was protected from the disease based based on uh, prior exposure, such that the disease doesn't spread nearly as rapidly. Every person infected infects one or fewer additional people. Um, that's we essentially reached something like that. Uh, now that doesn't mean the disease is gone. It just means that it's like a local phenomenon. There's not still a lot of people in the population who've never been exposed in October 2020. Um, and, uh, but the lockdowns were gonna come back. Um, and the UN had put out a report suggesting that 130 million people, the World Food Program, that 130 million people were, star- were had been threatened with dire food insecurity, meaning starvation as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns. Um, the World Bank had put out a report saying 100 million people were thrown into dire poverty, $2 a day or less of income um, by the, by this point. And so the lockdowns themselves was were doing considerable damage to the health of the of the world, um, and so and 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 the idea the the fact that there was this huge age grading in mortality, that older people were much much higher risk of dying from the disease if they're infected than younger people, that was abundantly clear. That was true from the earliest days of the pandemic. Um, the, the, so the, the declaration comes about because Martin Kulldorff, uh, a, a Harvard professor in biostatistics and epidemiology, um, invited me and Sunetra Gupta, an Oxford professor in, in epidemiology and a, a vaccine developer in her own right, to come to Western Massachusetts to talk about this, these facts. We had invited some journalists. The idea, the idea was to like, tell journalists that there were epidemiologists that disagreed with the, uh, the, the, the you know, people like Tony Fauci. That the right strategy wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, and to teach people about what herd immunity meant, what that the harms of the lockdowns, the, the both both the social and the health harms of the lockdowns themselves, especially to the poor, to children, working class, uh, to emphasize that the the evidence that the closure of schools was unnecessary for protecting people, the, the evidence with Sweden and Iceland and elsewhere was 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 pretty clear, from spring. um So we we got together and we decided that we needed to tell the world that the, the document is a single page document written in a way that anyone can understand and not just scientists. Uh, we wanted to tell the world that they that it wasn't necessary to have a lockdown. What was needed was focused protection of vulnerable older people and lifting lockdowns that would result in better health for the population than the lockdown strategies had. And so you put that out and all hell breaks
1: loose on the great Barrington Declaration talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so uh, I mean the the uh, almost a million people signed it uh, almost uh, you know we put it on the web and made a petition open to, for people to sign it um, and that happened uh, you know like within days, tens of thousands of epidemiologists signed it and doctors sign it um, and uh, but then I started getting hit pieces again against me. Uh, I mean I expected the BD to react negatively I mean I, I wasn't naive as like I was in, in spring of 2020 um, but I w- didn't anticipate that the scientific community uh, or members of the of the leadership of the epidemiology uh, and public health community would react in the way they did right so yeah Tony Fauci get going around giving lectures saying that we were we were dangerous that we that we were sprouting nonsense that in, that everyone who does epidemiology knows that we're spouting as nonsense that in, in fact uh, Um, we were proposing to let the virus rip uh we weren't proposing to let the virus rip we were proposing to protect vulnerable older people there was a dispute over how to do that right on one side you had people saying if you lock down societies you protect vulnerable older people automatically well that had already failed in the spring of 2020. um and uh on on our side we're saying well why not design policies more specific for protecting vulnerable older people, don't send COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes. That's just dumb because that's where the vulnerable older people were. Imagine if we'd had protection of vulnerable older people as the key idea um, driving policy in spring of 2020. Andrew Cuomo never would have sent older people, COVID-infected patients, back to nursing homes. Um, so you had this like you had this like um, essentially strategic difference between people in public health, um, and yet. Tony Fauci was characterizing what we were saying as so far out of bounds that we were that, that we were you know fringe figures. 4 days after we wrote the declaration we found out later via FOIA request the Francis Collins the head of the National Institute of Health wrote to Tony Fauci calling me uh, Martin Kulldorff and Sunetra Gupta fringe epidemiologists you know a, a basically an ad hominem slur and then uh, calling for a devastating takedown of the premises of the declaration. To which Tony Fauci responded with a wired magazine article, essentially smearing us, attacking us, um, and it was—I mean—just was the hit pieces were just relentless. Um, it was very clearly a coordinated propaganda campaign to attack us.
0: How was the academic community in that at that time? Uh, after you, you start to withstand these attacks, did you feel that the Stanford community and other academics that you'd known and. Um, you know, shared your careers with and visited at conferences leading up to this point? Were they supportive and standing up for Jay Bhattacharya? What happened? I mean, one, uh, there was a,
2: <laughs> there's a health economist friend of mine who I've known since graduate school. She, she proposed a boycott of my health economics textbook on Facebook. I mean, it was just, the whole thing was just, it was absolutely insane. Um, yeah, there, of course, there were a lot of uh, people I didn't know before that, that I highly respected they came out in favor of the, the, the declaration, that actually signed it. Many of the people who signed the declaration, they they put their careers on the line. They lost, they lost opportunities for grants. Some, some were actually fired from the universities. Um, it was a really tough time. It weirdly took an act of courage to sign the declaration. Um, if you and now, and now, at the same time, we were getting messages from all around the world, Joe, telling us that, uh, to thanking us for, I mean, it was, uh, uh, like so, like some of the accusations were like it, were, were that we were writing the declaration as a political thing to support President Trump. For us, it was nothing to do with the politics. For us, it was a declaration about about epidemiological facts and about the policy of the lockdown being damaging, and that there being an exist existing alternative policy of of focused protection of vulnerable vulnerable people. Um, that and and for you know from. 40 different languages, people people just started offering us uh, translations of the document. And so if you go look online, it were like 40 translations almost immediately after we, we, we wrote the declaration. It struck a chord worldwide. Um, I was more concerned, I was concerned about lockdowns in the U.S. My kids weren't uh, allowed in school. They didn't set, set forth inside a schoolhouse for a year and a half in California. But I was more concerned even about what was happening to the poor of the world, Joe. Um, and that was the main, that was one of the main drivers of the declaration, that the lockdown policy, while damaging in the West, was bad enough in Poorer parts of the world, it was absolutely devastating, Ab- like driving millions of people into poverty, killing people, uh, killing vulnerable people who, co- who were on the edge of survival anyway, starving them. Um, in in uh, in Uganda is a good example of this. you can see what happened Expo, uh, exposed very clearly. Um, the World Health Organization essentially or uh, pushed closing schools. I mean, they didn't certainly didn't oppose the closing schools. Uganda, they closed schools for two full years. And no Zoom school just schools were closed, four and a half million of those kids never came back from school from from that from that hiatus. that's a that's generational po- poverty that we've created through the lockdowns. And many of those, it turns out many of those were kids sold into sexual slavery or uh, put into like you know dr- draconian child labor. Uh, or can you just think about the plight of those families that that send those kids to that? The reason they did that is because they were, because of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns, they were pushed to the decision between starving their families and selling their kids into sexual slavery.
0: So let's talk about as we're having this conversation. It'll probably be a few days or maybe a week before uh, it's up on the web or released. But there was news today about the president of Stanford, Tessier Levine, being forced to resign. Um, due to some irregularities in research that he had published over a number of years, um, you mentioned the attacks that you took from within Stanford and and beyond. Do you want to comment on uh, the the climate that you endured at at Stanford um, while he was president, and and any thoughts about his resignation?
2: Yeah, I just heard the news today that he was uh, that he's resigning in August. Um, I have to say I'm very disappointed in uh, the the uh, the president uh, that President Tessie Levine of Stanford. Like he, uh, during the pandemic, had an obligation to create an environment where dissent was possible without feeling like your career was threatened. Stanford was a hostile work environment for every single one of us that spoke up against. Uh, the, the the restrictions in um, when Scott Atlas was the president's advisor, uh, President Trump's advisor in July August 2020, a um, hundred of my colleagues circulated a petition, circulated by and written by a former dean of the medical school. It, the, the petition essentially accused Scott of doing pseudoscience when he was what he was arguing for was focused protection of vulnerable older people. When he was what he was arguing for was. I, I think like the standard pandemic plan, uh, a plan that, that that we'd followed for a century of respiratory virus pandemics, rather than this lockdown focused plan. And he was arguing for open schools, which which had we followed, we would have been in a much better place, our kids would have been in a much better place as society. Um, but instead they, they very scurrilously suggested that he was against basic things like hand washing, which he was fully in favor of hand washing. A um, hundred of my colleagues signed this petition it was put up on the the med school web page uh, essentially making it seem as if it was Stan- official stanford policy it felt like a wor- hostile work environment at stanford for anyone that opposed the lockdowns i personally uh, for a couple of days in september 2021 was afraid to walk on campus because there was a poster campaign effectively cu- accusing me of killing people in florida for having uh, given advice to the governor of florida to keep schools open uh to to that telling him that child masking masking toddlers had there was no good evidence that they did anything um uh for for actually advocating for vaccinating older people uh in january 2021 for those those things essentially we um, were so controversial at Stanford that that uh, Stanford allowed a poster campaign all on kiosks all over campus, uh, accusing me of threatening to uh, of killing people in Florida because I I'd done that. Um, and and uh, just a, a concrete thing that Tessie Levine could have done, that the leadership of Stanford could have done. Um, throughout the pandemic, there've been uh, you know, 150 uh, things called a grand round. Grand round is where you. A professor talks to the entire medical school, tells them about their research. It's a big deal to get invited to do this. 150 grand rounds, uh, hundreds on COVID, 100 some on COVID, um, and not one person opposed to the lockdown measures. Not me, not Scott Atlas, not John Ioannidis, not Mike Levitt, the uh, Nobel Prize winner in in, in biology. They're in chemistry. Uh, who opposed lockdowns? Not one person opposed to the lockdowns, no matter how prominent, have been invited to give a talk at Stanford uh, on this. They, there was no policy seminar where we would discuss with other people who disagreed with us. None of the standard things where academics do to, to to talk about their disagreements happened during the pandemic um, involving us. Instead, it was just a hostile work environment at Stanford. And President Tesla Lean bears a, a substantial responsibility for that. So with
1: his departure, and change at Stanford's leadership. How do you create the sort of appropriate protection and academic freedom, scientific exploration, and conversation? Is that a rules-based structure? Is that a culture? Is it something else? Is it a combination? How do you make sure that that, which it sounds like has been lost, is restored for Stanford and more broadly throughout universities and colleges in the United States?
2: I mean, I think it's a question of leadership, Eric, that it's not, it's not, you can't make a rule. Uh, it does, it is a culture, but that, but the culture is very strongly affected by leaders and by lead and the example set by leaders. So if you have leaders that, uh, that mouth the words of academic freedom of an open culture of enlightenment and discussion, um, it, and, but then act in ways to suppress that, to put their thumb on the scale so that, that those kinds of things can happen, the culture will change with it and very rapidly i mean i've been at stanford for a very long time eric thir- you know 37 years as a student and then professor um the culture before the pandemic was pretty open if you wanted to say something you could say it now uh, it had been creeping it had been creeping in, in a direction uh, with the rest of the country i think especially on matters of race and other things away from that open dis- openness um which was unfortunate but it was still possible on matters of scientific you know, like I've never, I never before the pandemic, if you'd asked me, was it did I ever feel like I couldn't say what I wanted to say Stanford? I would have said no. I would, I mean, I could very clearly, very clearly, easily say what I wanted to say. I could even get a platform to saying it on in in seminars and and elsewhere. During the pandemic, that changed, and it changed because the leadership decided that it wanted it to change. It it made it so that you if you didn't toe Stanford's line on vaccine mandates or on lockdown uh, procedures or on on making you know moving to zoom school or whatnot um then uh, or or if you or if you participated actively in the national or international policy discussion in ways that oppose the lockdowns or might that oppose maybe what the cdc or the who was saying then then you weren't allowed to say that at stanford that somehow you were out of balance, no matter how prominent you are no matter how uh how uh uh you know strongly your' Uh, recommendations and ideas were rooted in the scientific literature. That none of that mattered. It just mattered that you came to the wrong conclusion.
0: Jay, let's. You alluded before to things that you learned later through FOIA and other methods about the ways that you were targeted by senior sciences, c- senior scientists within the government. Can you talk about that um, illumination that occurred for you? You're In the middle of it at Stanford, you're being targeted by colleagues, but it was only over a period of time that you realized that there were people in the government, official uh, government scientists who were targeting you. And ultimately, you've uh, chosen to launch some lawsuits and what you've discovered through that that process.
2: Yeah, so... uh the the first hints that I had about this targeting came from FOIA requests from uh, from uh, 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 some, some some journalists, and um, the uh, those emails from Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, to Tony Fauci, um, came about from those FOIA FOIA requests, and that targeting was, was personal. You know, fringe epidemiologist. Uh, the uh, uh, the other the other uh, sort of hints I had around this had to do with. Uh suppression of, of my thoughts on social media. Right? So I did a I was in a round table, a policy roundtable hosted by the governor of Florida, uh Ron DeSantis, in March 2021. And that was filmed by a TV station in Florida, which put that round table on YouTube. YouTube then censored the round table of a sitting governor talking to scientific advisors on which he's making decisions normally good government you'd say okay yeah of course you should uh, even if you disagree with what the scientific advisors are saying it's good for the citizens to know the basis of on which uh governors are making decisions um, but youtube decided to pull that down because something i said i said that there was no good evidence that masking toddlers did any good um there was there was no randomized evidence no high quality evidence at all that ran that masking children did any good on terms of reducing disease spread which was true there still is no randomized evidence on that um and yet youtube censored that um i was on uh mark in what was it, august of 2021 i joined twitter um and i mean it was uh, like i i I, did, I just had this hint that i mean i knew that i was i mean i got a big audience almost immediately like a hundred thousand people but I was talking to people who already agreed with me, and I knew there were a lot of people who disagreed with me. That was the purpose of joining Twitter—to let to talk to people that 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 were in good faith wanted to discuss disagreements. But instead, I was I was I was like, it felt like I was like I was, and yeah, you know, and I also knew that if I said certain things. I was going to get censored. Martin Kulldorff, uh wrote uh, uh, some some critical remarks on mass on Twitter. And then he was he was suspended and he wrote some. He wrote something very, very, benign. he We said that uh, the session, the, the marginal benefit for the COVID vaccines were higher for older people than it was for younger people. You did it in a more pithy way than I just said it. But that's just, just a basic scientific fact, because older people face high risk of the disease. Young, younger people, much lower risk of getting uh, severely ill. You um, censored for that. Uh, on Twitter, so I self-censored on Twitter when I joined. I didn't want to be—I didn't didn't want to be suspended, um, and it was just odd. I was like I, I'm a scientist; I should be able to say what I think, um, but I—but uh, social media had put the finger on the scale. Uh, w- uh, and what I learned when Elon Musk bought the Twitter, uh, an independent journalist named Barry Weiss looked into this. It turns out I had been put on a blacklist very early on. Uh, when, in fact, I think the day I joined Twitter, I was put on a blacklist so that my tweets could be seen by people who followed me and agreed with me potentially, but would never be seen by a broader public, and no chance of of, of being exposed. Other, other, other people outside of the the small community of people I'd cultivated, the community of people I'd cultivated, um, seeing it. I mean, what's the purpose of that? I mean, I don't need to talk. I don't need to talk to my I mean, it's fun to talk to people who agree with you, but it's not, That's not the only, it's not the only, it's not the main purpose, right? We want we so, need to be able to talk to people who don't. Yeah,
0: right. So Twitter didn't put out a notice or didn't send you an email and say, your views are too, con- are too controversial for our platform, or you're saying things that we think are going to hurt people. We are therefore going to blacklist you. You, you just, you had no, you just had a sense that you were being suppressed. Um, and then you you discover this later on. Now, just for context, there were conservatives talking about shadow banning and things like that, and they were being attacked by the media as being conspiracy theorists. Twitter never came out and said, yeah, we have a blacklist, correct? And on that blacklist are all these people because their views are objectionable. Do you know, did you unpack how did they discover your name? Were you was your name forwarded to Twitter? Or was it an internal bureaucratic process at Twitter that's that identified Jay Bhattacharya as a problem?
2: Yeah, so I, I don't know that for a fact. I don't know how I ended up on the blacklist. What I do know is that the day I joined Twitter, I was on the blacklist. That I that I know for a fact. I saw with my own eyes in Twitter's internal databases of that fact. Um there's some internal discussions about the Great Barrington Declaration and other other people putting ideas that they didn't want, especially around vaccines. They really were really concerned about, um, about vaccines and about people saying things that would make people not take the vaccine. Um, but what was interesting, Joe, was that they were, uh, so th- th- a lot of those internal discussions were very clearly, not just they were trying to be responsible citizens, trying to control the conversation in ways that they thought was responsible. No, it was, it was. They were responding to pressure from government actors, telling them who to censor and what to censor. Um, the, 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 the way I got involved with the Twitter files, is because Barry Weiss, uh, who I knew, she she decided to, to look me up and see if I was on a blacklist, And she was surprised to find me find I was on. I'm not I, I mean, I'm not a political actor, Joe. I don't I don't I don't. You know, I'm not even political speech, of course, ought to be protected. Um, but I, but I wasn't doing political things. I was I was saying things that public health authorities didn't like. That's not a reason to to blacklist me, but that's exactly what happened. And um, what happened after uh, that uh, after that is that uh, uh, in August of 2022, uh, I got I was contacted by the Missouri and Louisiana attorney general's offices who were considering a lawsuit against against the Biden administration for its activities in inducing the censorship that we actually ended up seeing Um, that lawsuit has uncovered a vast enterprise involving a dozen federal agencies including the white house itself telling social media companies what to censor and who to censor it explains why uh, it actually and, and it goes back even before the biden administration it explains why uh but, but during the biden administration that that those kinds of activities were essentially weaponized uh expanded to a scale i think never seen before in american history um and you have you have like the White House, the the, the deputy to the to, uh, to President Biden, writing emails to people at Facebook and other social media companies, telling them, if you don't censor these people, we're gonna we're going to we're gonna like use our regulatory power to go after you. It was a direct threat to these companies. They weren't acting alone, Joe. They were acting at the behest of uh, the federal bureaucracy. And so,
1: this material is being discovered during the course of lawsuits, you're suddenly having your eyes open about how you were treated by Twitter and and the technology community. This lawsuit ultimately is successful from the attorney generals. But what, if anything, can be concluded by you about (laughs) a challenge to scientific process and scientific integrity and an academy that doesn't have a culture to protect that. High-tech platforms that are blacklisting or actually uh, suspending or refusing people to speak. Uh, A significant political intervention into a way of digging into facts, coming to conclusions and sharing those with the public. Where do we stand here in the summer of 2023 after four years of this and then, where we kind of be able to go when it comes to potential significant health
2: crises, future epidemics, future pandemics? You know, so um, the the lawsuit we just won a, a preliminary injunction against the Biden administration, so that they're not allowed to talk to social media for these kinds of censorship activities. Uh, they can still tell people tell social media companies about criminals and whatnot, but that's a diff- that's different than. Um, you know, you cannot. You should censor J or censor people like Jay or censor ideas like this on public health ideas. They're they're now enjoined against that. Um, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has stayed that injunction uh, based on uh, so. Bit, there's going to be a hearing on August, uh, early August, uh, to resolve that. That's like a, a like an administrative stay. There's nothing on the merits. The merits look very very solid. It seems very likely we'll win this case. Um, that's a big first step. You have to get the federal government out of the business of censorship of scientific conversation. Um, but that's that's a necessary but not a sufficient step. We're at a point where the scientific uh, the whole scientific establishment has uh, faces a choice. Like right? it has to it has to come to terms with the failure of of, of basic scientific processes where we end up where, where which enable scientists who disagree to talk with each other. Uh, and uh, we, because of the deep public distrust, I think that is coming of science and, sci- and scientists, because of the, the because of the idea that we had these gain of function exercises might have actually caused the, vir- the the pandemic itself. It's a it's a big opportunity, I think, for scientists to 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 reform, right? To to say, okay, what? Why did we we run away from basic enlightenment ideals during the pandemic? How can we? uh change and reform scientific funding processes uh scientific oversight uh universities uh uh, convening scientific scientists how can we how can we like change those and reform those institutions so that they can perform better going forward and regain the trust of the public Uh, because if we don't uh the, the the public support for the scientists is really vital for the scientific enterprise once it goes away scientists will find themselves in dire straits
1: so, Jay, this is the center of a white hot sun that you've walked through. Are you still excited to do science every morning when you come to work? Have you changed how you approach thinking about what you study and how you share it? Or are you still fired up to come in every
2: day, put on the white smock and get to work? So I um, I still love science, Eric, uh, I, and I but I have to say, like during the pandemic, I mean before the pandemic if you'd ask me i'd say like the way you influence the world is you write scientific papers you publish them in peer-reviewed journals uh, and if it's a good idea people will pick it up i'm no longer that naive i don't think that that is primarily the way you can change and now if you had a function well-functioning scientific community that's exactly how you would change the world um the problem is we do not have a well-functioning scientific community and i i um nowadays i'm really really interested in, in using uh, my voice to try to reform the scientific community to reform. This is so this is why we, I helped found this Academy of Science and Freedom. I want uh, I want to get conversations going among scientists about how to get back to doing what we do best and not being so involved in. I mean, I think there's two major problems I think that happened during the pandemic in the scientific community. One was scientists weren't allowed to speak. Right, we were censored from talking to each other if we had the wrong the, the quote wrong ideas. And uh, that needs to that needs to get reformed. Um, Then the second thing is scientists took on this uh, this sort of like role they really aren't are ill suited for. Scientists are good at advising; they're not good at deciding exactly what to do, right? So in public policy, there's trade-offs, right? So you have to make decisions um, that benefit one group and potentially harm another. That's just part of public policy. And how do you mitigate the harm to the group that you're potentially harming? How do you get around that? Um, science is only part of that conversation, not not the determinative thing in that conversation, right? So lockdowns did benefit some groups, right? Some people got very, very rich during the, as a result of many of the policies we followed, for instance. Um, these are trade-offs. These are trade-offs that scientists have very little expertise in and shouldn't be primarily deciding. Scientists took on the aura of of deciders of society, as opposed to you know, d- you know, leaders, leader like leaders who make decisions about these trade offs that for which they should not be doing.
0: Jay, we could talk all day, and I look forward to the next conversation, whether it's uh, on a podcast or uh, over a cup of coffee. But I really want to thank you on behalf of Eric and myself for taking the time to join this uh, podcast of DC EKG. It's always a pleasure. And I always learn something when we talk to you. And thank you for continuing to pursue and speak the truth.
2: Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Eric, for having me. It was really a pleasure to talk to both of you.